This morning we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Romans, chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And as you're turning there, I'll just remind you that this series is called Focused. And we're talking about living a gospel-centered life. And, and the key to really living a life like that that's focused on the gospel is to remember that whatever it is that you're focusing on will dictate the direction of your life. So whatever has your gaze, whatever you are focused on, wherever your head is facing, your feet will follow. And so wherever you're focused, that will dictate the direction of your life. And so we must have our lives, our gaze, focused on the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. And so we must, as a disciple, be focused on him who we are following. And this gospel that is good news, that's what it means. Gospel is good news that Jesus came that he died on the cross for sinners like you and me who deserve God's wrath, but he endured God's wrath in our place, and he died, and he was buried, but then on Easter morning, he was resurrected powerfully. He is alive today. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He'll one day finally vanquish the enemy, Satan, and he has now gone into the darkness and holds our hand and would guide us out of darkness into life if and only if we will repent and believe with all of our heart in him. And when we focus on this gospel of grace, our lives are completely transformed. And so when I talk about living a gospel-centered life, what I'm talking about specifically is everything that a person thinks, says, and does is radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's transformed by the grace of God as seen through the cross of Christ. And so everything that we do, say, and think is transformed by the grace of God as we focus on the cross of Jesus. And so today we're talking about a gospel-centered life that's empowered by the Spirit. Now, as we jump in and talk about the Spirit here in just a few minutes, because that's today's sermon is all about the Holy Spirit of God and His role in our lives there, there tend to be, a lot of times, evangelical worlds, two major camps. And, and one camp are the charismaniacs. You know what I'm talking about? The ones that maybe really overemphasize the Spirit and they talk about the Spirit exclusively and almost nothing else. And the other people are the ones that believe that, that, that the Trinity is God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Bible. And there is no Holy Spirit because he's never talked about. He's completely ignored and neglected. And either of these extremes is not healthy. To talk about the, the, the Spirit and ignore the other members of the Trinity and to overemphasize or de-emphasize the Spirit, either extreme is not healthy. We have to have a healthy understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how he works in our lives. And that's what we're talking about this Morning. So let's read Romans 8, verses 5 through 13, and learn about what God reveals about His Spirit. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, but to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. Let me give you the primary truth, the overarching truth of this text, the main idea, the singular thought that we must focus on this morning is that the Holy Spirit alone makes gospel-centered living possible. It's that simple. That the Holy Spirit alone makes gospel-centered living possible. It is only empowered by the Spirit of God. And so we must have His Spirit transform our hearts to then enable us to be able to live for Christ. And so how does this work? How exactly? Because we can talk about these things and then and it be kind of, kind of ethereal and very theological or academic and say, well, how does this actually happen in my life as I am living my life with my kids, with my spouse, with life in Abu Dhabi, and I miss home and life is hard here sometimes or whatever it is for you? How does the Spirit of God actually change how you live? Because it has to be God's Spirit. We have to have a healthy and biblical understanding of the Spirit of God. And so in this text, the Holy Spirit is described clearly with the progression. There are three sequential steps that God has revealed in this text for how the Spirit transforms. And so the Spirit's transformational work begins with step one. So how does the Spirit transform disciples of Jesus. Number one, the first step is regeneration. And so step one is regeneration. You're wondering, I don't know what that word means. It's kind of a big word. I'm already confused. Hang with me. The word regeneration just refers quite simply to the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, where a spiritually dead sinner is made alive. And his evil nature is radically transformed. And so to regenerate means to make alive, to resurrect. And so the Holy Spirit does his work. The first step is regeneration. He literally resurrects a dead soul so that we are alive and we have a new nature that is radically different from our previous sinful nature. Now, for some of you, you're already confused. You're like, ah, ah, you already lost me. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, maybe you're confused for different reasons. One, it's the first time you've heard this, and that's okay. But others can get confused by this because we tend to think that we have to try and try to somehow please God. And some of you in this room are emotionally exhausted because you try so hard to be good, and you're trying to maintain purity, 
and you're working hard to love your spouse or whatever it might be, and you're finding it just really hard and tiring, and, and you're just spinning your wheels in the sand. Like the first time I went out to the desert, I, I should not have gone, at least not in my own vehicle, because we went out, and we were in the sand, and I started spinning the wheels really fast, and guess what I was doing? Going deeper and deeper and until it was David he came up to me and said, hey, stop, you are axle deep. Like, your car is totally in the sand. And we had to dig it out. It was a huge hassle, but it ended up working out. It got damaged. I had to go repair it. But that's for a different story, for a different day. Point is, sometimes we can do that and spin our wheels so fast and just go deeper and deeper in the sand. And we're not actually going anywhere. And it's exhausting. And so if you feel that way today, this word from God on regeneration is powerful. Let's read verses 5 through 8 again and look at them more closely and see how the Spirit resurrects dead souls. Verses 5 through 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These few verses describe the reality, the truth of human nature. We're told by our world that humans are, are good, but this is telling us clearly that humans are not good. We have a fallen, sinful nature. And so left to ourselves, what's natural to us, our sinful nature he calls here the flesh, is opposed to God and his purposes. And so you see in verses 5 through 8 that those that don't have the Spirit, it says those who live according to the flesh. It says, number one, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. It says they're spiritually dead. It says that they're hostile. They're actually at war, an enemy of God. It says that they do not submit to God. It says they can't, cannot. It says they cannot even please God. And so due to evil tendencies, humans will absolutely, naturally, it says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And so all of our thoughts and our inclinations and our desires are selfish and corrupted. This is what's natural to us. But these verses, side by side, also compare the opposite. It says those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. And then he says, have spiritual life, not death, but life. And it says that they have peace, not war with God, they're at peace. And so he is comparing exactly the opposite of what it's like to be in the flesh versus in the Spirit. They are diametrically opposed to each other. They're opposites, completely different and separate. And so there's a difference between someone who is, quote, in the flesh and someone who is, quote, in the Spirit. And the difference here is the Holy Spirit, that what He does is the absolute radical transformation. 
there's this new nature that God gives to followers of Jesus, where it says their minds are on the Spirit. Verse 8 is a really strong verse. I mean, if you read verse 8, it says that those who don't have the Holy Spirit cannot please God, can't do it. Now, if you are in the room and you are not a follower of Jesus, does this mean that you can't do anything good? Does this mean that you have no capacity to do anything good for someone else? Well, the answer to that is no. If you're here and you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can still do good things. You can still be good to other human beings. You you can still try to be a moral person. You can still try to have good behavior. And you can still try to love your wife and bless your kids. You still can do good things. But see, here's the question. Is God pleased with your good actions? Is God impressed with your attempts at morality and on being a good person? No. God's not impressed with you. He's not impressed with me either. Because God sees the heart. And in the heart, maybe we can try to bless other people. But even then, in most cases, There's a selfish motivation that's hidden, that's not seen to the other person. And so even in our attempt to do good to others, there's usually a selfish motive. Because someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit does not have the ability to please God. Why? Because the only reason why anyone can please God is because Jesus did it. Jesus alone pleased God. He alone kept all the law. He alone kept all the commandments. He alone was perfectly pure and holy because God demands absolute holiness. Nothing short of perfection will do to be in relationship with God. Nothing. He expects, he demands because he's holy. He must have absolute holiness and only Jesus did that. And so only those that are in Christ can please God. That's it. There's no other way you can please another human being, but you cannot please God on your own power. You can't. You'll fail. You will try and try and exhaust yourself trying to please God on your own power, and unless the work of Jesus is credited, is imputed, is transferred as a word to you, it won't count. Because only Christ pleased God. And so those who don't have the Spirit are not following Jesus, cannot please Him. Because we can't satisfy His holiness. Only Jesus did that. Apart from God's grace, our attempts to do good will fall short. If left to ourselves, we won't get there. Because what God expects from us is every single thought, word, or decision, everything that we do has to be motivated to please God, to glorify God, and we can because of our sinful nature. Earlier in the service, Ekram read from Ezekiel 36, very important verse written by a prophet, Ezekiel, almost 600 years before Jesus came. And the promise that he gave says, you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. This is huge. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is huge. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll give you a new heart and I'll give you my spirit and I will literally move you, cause you to obey me. Because of the spirit, this new nature. Listen very carefully. Listen The gospel is not a call to try harder. It's not a call to do better, to get more religion, to do more. It has nothing to do with that. It is a call to trust Jesus who did it all for you. To the glory of God and for our blessedness, Jesus did it. And so we respond with faith to him who did it for us. And so it is not for us to try harder and do more to somehow please God because you can't. The Holy Spirit must make this radical change where you have a new heart, new desires, new ability, new empowering to please God based upon the work of Jesus on the cross who paid it all for you. And so there's this amazing preacher. Wish I could have met him. I'll meet him someday. His name is Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. Amazing man. Love reading his sermons. I was, I was reading one recently, and he was talking about this. Spurgeon, he was a, a British prince of preachers, is what he's referred to as. And he talked about this doctrine of regeneration, of having a new heart with the Holy Spirit. And, and he talks about, imagine that you had a big room, and you, had, and you had on one side of the room a beautiful table set up with fine food. And then on the other side, you had just this feeding trough filled with trash and slop. Just right there on the, on the ground. And then you let a pig run into the room. The pig would completely ignore the table of fine food. He would run straight to the floor with feeding trough with slop and trash in it. And this pig would just stick his head into the trash and he would feast. And he would eat this slop, because that's what pigs do. That's just in their nature. And he would just devour this slop until his desires were satisfied. With no concern for the good food in the room. But what would happen if by some way it were possible, while this pig is devouring his trash, if we could transform that pig into a person, all of a sudden, You have a human being with his face in this trashy slop heap. What would happen? Well, first of all, I can tell you this, that all of this slop and trash that this this person had desired just a minute earlier, now is going to be disgusting to him. Like, oh, what am I doing? How am I eating this? He would realize what he's eating, just his refuse, his rubbish, as our British friends call it. He would realize what he was doing, and he would now not want to eat it anymore, be repulsive. Secondly, he would pull his head out of this slop, and he would throw up. Why? Because humans are not made to eat trash. If you you go home and eat some trash, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to throw up. You're going to get sick. Now, a pig can eat trash. It doesn't bother him. Pigs are made to eat slop. 
And so the very same thing that he was ingesting now would cause him to just throw up violently from what he had just eaten. Thirdly, what would happen to this man? He'd be ashamed because the others in the room that, that were eating at the banquet table with the fine food would see this guy was facing trash and he would all of a sudden feel ashamed. And he would say, I'm so sorry. And he wouldn't go clean his face and go sit at the table with the other people. He wouldn't want to eat the trash anymore and he would feel ashamed, whereas the pig felt no shame whatsoever. And fourthly, this person would never forget the day they were transformed. Never forget. They would always remember when their nature was changed, when their desires were changed, when all of a sudden the sin that you used to enjoy all of a sudden is repulsive to you, when that sin that you used to delight in all of a sudden you, you hate now. How do you explain radical transformation in a human being other than by the Spirit of God? You can't. This is what the Spirit does. He changes what our mind focuses on, what our desires are, because we're in the Spirit, because the Spirit is living inside of us. You see, every single religion on this planet, including the ones that are well-known in Abu Dhabi, every religion tells you, do this, try harder, follow this path, do have these pillars, read this, do this, and as long as you're doing all of these things, then you can somehow earn God's favor. And yet, the gospel is completely different. It says there is nothing you can do. Jesus did it all. Repent and believe in him, and he'll give you his Holy Spirit. He will change your heart. He'll give you new desires and abilities to please him based upon what Christ did on the cross. Jesus did it. Believe in him. No religion says that. And the reason is Christianity is not a religion. It's knowing Jesus. It's having the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here today and you're honestly trying and working to somehow earn God's favor and do enough religion to do enough good, you don't need more religion. Listen to me. You don't need more religion. You need a new heart. You need a resurrection. You need your spirit to be made alive so you can know and experience the beauty of Jesus as you can walk with him every day. And God offers you his spirit. He offers you regeneration to be made alive spiritually. So how is your heart? How is your heart? Something you have to honestly consider. Do you have the spirit? If you don't, you don't belong to Jesus. Let's read verses 9 through 11 and see the second step in the Spirit's work and transformation. So he just described those who don't have Jesus, have only the old nature. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
The first step of the Spirit's work is regeneration, spiritual resurrection. The second step is indwelling. What we see here, this is the theme of this, this verse, is indwelling. And so disciples of Jesus who are following him, he says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He says, why? Because God's Spirit dwells inside of us. He says it over and over. He says it. He dwells in you. And so this is the key. So first, the Spirit resurrects our soul so that we are changed radically. And then secondly, He comes to live in us. It's not like He would change you and then leave you on your own. No, He changes our hearts. And then He comes to stay and to live, to dwell in us. And we have a new nature, a new heart, where the Spirit of God interwines with our human spirit. Now, this is profound. This is, this is a tremendous mystery of how God's Spirit literally interwines with your spirit, and He is literally in you, indwelling believers. This is absolutely supernatural, the work of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. That's what we see here clearly. And who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And verse 10 reminds us that we're all dying. From your first breath, from that first baby's cry, when now there is life, immediately death has already begun because that baby will not live forever. We're all dying. Until that day when we're with Him in heaven forever, where death is eradicated and our bodies are no longer degenerating, until that day comes, we live on this earth where our cells degenerate, where we are all dying. And so he says that in verse 10. But he says that we have life, we have resurrected spiritual life now, and we have the hope, according to verse 11, that our moral bodies, our physical bodies, will be resurrected through the same spirit that resurrected Jesus. This is amazing. I mean, just stop and just ponder this. This should move your heart to just be in awe and just to worship Jesus. That we were dead on the inside, did not know God, enjoyed the trash of this world, and he sends his son who dies for you, and then he gives you his spirit, and you realize, oh my God, what am I doing? And you respond to Jesus, and he's, he sends his spirit to live inside of you. And then there's a hope that after you die, the same spirit that resurrected Jesus is going to resurrect your dead body. When your body is in the ground one day, that same body is going to hear that trumpet and it's going to be raised up. Your body will be resurrected and joined with your spirit that will already be with Jesus in heaven. And you will then enter into the eternity on the new heavens, the new earth with Jesus forever. And the spirit is a promise, the guarantee that it's going to happen. This is absolutely mind-blowing, and he lives in us now. Amazing. This indwelling of the Spirit is indeed a divine mystery. I cannot explain how all of this works to you. Really, no one can fully comprehend this, but I can tell you this. The Spirit's indwelling is the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus having his presence. If you don't have the indwelling of the Spirit, you're not 
a Christian. You are not a believer. You are not a disciple. You don't have the Spirit. You don't have Jesus. This is His Spirit. They're one in the Trinity. You see, the Holy Spirit does not work by Himself. He's not independent of, of the Trinity. In John 16, we don't have time today. On your own time, read that amazing chapter. John 14 and John 16 both give us a lot of information on who the Spirit is and how He works. In John 16, Jesus promises that He's going to send His Spirit, this Comforter, this other who is the same essence as Him. And He says that this Spirit will not work on His own, that the Spirit will proclaim Jesus, the Spirit will, will glorify Jesus. And so the Spirit's whole purpose is to glorify Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. And so Jesus is glorified whenever his gospel is proclaimed. When we remember and when we treasure and when we live out and when we tell others the gospel, Jesus is glorified. And when Jesus is being lifted up, the Spirit is at work. No praising of Jesus, no lifting up of Jesus, no gospel, no, gospel, no Spirit at work. He only works when the gospel is proclaimed and when people are gripped by the beauty of Jesus, then the Spirit is active and He works and He resurrects dead souls and He grows believers and the Spirit is what our church needs the most. We are so desperate for the Spirit's work in our lives individually and together as a church because apart from His working, we have nothing. Nothing. It has to be his work. And in our lives individually, we must be remembering and living out this gospel every single day so that the Spirit will work. Because that's how Jesus promised that he works. He regenerates dead souls, and then he indwells them. We learned last week, as we talked in the first four verses of this chapter, about sanctification. Sanctification is it's a big word, but all it means is to make holy. And so to be sanctified is to be made holy. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that does this. And so the Holy Spirit is the one that grows believers to be more like Jesus when we focus on him. So when we stop focusing on Jesus and his gospel, when our focus gets off of Christ, all of a sudden we have just stopped our sanctification. Now, you are still justified. There is still no condemnation for those that are in Christ. I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but your sanctification gets stunted. You won't grow as much. The Spirit won't be as free, which is why you read in several verses about don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't resist the Spirit's sanctifying work in your life. Yield to Him. Give yourself to the Spirit's Work as you read the Bible and say, I want Jesus and his presence more than anything else. And so I'm going to yield to the Spirit. I'm going to obey God's word. And I'm going to sense his presence. And it's in this relationship with the Spirit then grows us. He sanctifies us. But only when we are focused on Christ and his gospel of grace. So the first step, the Spirit regenerates dead souls. Secondly, he indwells those new souls, these believers in Jesus. So he regenerates, he indwells. Thirdly, the Spirit 
empowers our efforts. So he resurrects us, he lives with us, and then he empowers our efforts to pursue Christ. We see that in verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. He's talking to brothers here. So these are believers in Jesus. They've repented and believed. They're born again of the Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. They have responded to the gospel. So these are brothers. And he says that they're not in debt to the flesh. That they're not enslaved by or owned by or controlled by their sinful desires, their sinful nature. And so, and we'll look at this next week, that they're actually free from that as adopted into God's family. But that's for next week. But he's saying here that they're free, that they're not in debt to their sinful nature. They are in debt to Jesus. Jesus owns them. We belong to Christ if we have his spirit. We don't belong to sinful nature. We're not in our sin. We're in Christ now, and we have his Holy Spirit. And so then he says, in light of that, we must do something. Now, this, this is active. He says, we must, it says, put to death the deeds of the body. And so as we live in the Spirit, what he says here, so living in the Spirit, so the Spirit empowers us to put to death our sinful desires, to execute, to kill our sinful desires. And this is done, it says, by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is what empowers our efforts, gives us the desire and the ability to actually overcome temptation. So let's just get practical as we kind of wrap this thing up, okay? Let's get practical. Let's see, how does this actually work in my daily life? How does the Spirit actually help me to kill my simple desires and to live for Jesus more effectively, more vibrantly? How does the Spirit help me with that? Well, there's four means. The first one is strength. So the Spirit gives us strength. Now, we'll actually go through these in more detail in our home groups this week. And so if you're not a home group, you'll miss out on, on, on going through this a little bit more deeply. We'll talk about it briefly here this morning. And so the first one, the Spirit gives us strength. So there's this inner strength that the Spirit helps us to resist temptation and to have victory over our sin that previously was defeating us. And so there's this inner strength described in Ephesians 3, for example. But it's not just that. It's also understanding. And so the Spirit gives us strength. He gives us understanding. This is called, if you want to use big words, the doctrine of illumination. All that means is that the Spirit illuminates, sheds light, reveals. And so we have understanding. As, as we begin to read God's Word, we understand it. I was talking to a brother. I won't name him, but just this week. And he was telling me, and he came to Christ in the last year, was baptized not long ago. And he was saying, man, this is, just blows me away. I used to read this. I didn't understand it. I'll hear about the Spirit, and I, I didn't know what that meant. It was confusing to me. But now that I'm growing as a disciple, I'm being discipled, I'm learning. He was on the edge of tears. He was like, this is amazing. I read it, and I understand it. I get it. Whereas before, I didn't know what it was talking about. And I, I was like just celebrating. I'm like, I love you, brother. I'm so encouraged by you. I love the fact 
that your understanding that the Spirit illuminates. He sheds light. He gives us understanding. And so when, when someone approaches this book and they don't have the Spirit, it's not going to make sense to them. It's not. Only the Spirit allows us to read this and make sense of it. Only the Spirit allows us to have understanding. The spiritual mind understands spiritual things. The Spirit does that. So he gives us strength and understanding. And thirdly, he gives us correction. He corrects us. So as, as disciples, we sense the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin. This comes out of John 16, that he convicts us of our sin. And he gives us a desire to glorify God. Now, an important distinction here. This is important. You cannot lose your union with the Spirit. Remember from last week, for there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so you cannot lose your union with Christ, but you can lose your communion. And so you won't lose the relationship, you won't lose your salvation, but you can lose the intimacy. You can lose experiencing his presence every day. And so you won't lose union, but you can lose communion. And so how do we maintain this communion? Well, the Spirit convicts us of our sin so that we don't have it clouded between us and God. So every day we have to be drawing near and communing with Jesus. And so believers in Jesus, what we should have, we should be known for having both inner peace and inner warfare. We should have both. You should have inner peace. Because you know that you're secure in Jesus. You know that he died for you. He offers you eternal life. It's not on your abilities or your merit. Jesus paid it all. And so we rest and we have inner peace. And yet we at the same time have inner warfare. Because now we have the Holy Spirit and now we can fight against lingering sin and habitual patterns of, of evil behavior. And so we have to be constantly fighting and putting to death the deeds of the, of the flesh, as we just read in verse 13. And so this is an active thing where we are at war with our sinful nature, and yet we're empowered by the Spirit to do it. We must focus on the gospel. As we fight, we know that we're doing it because the Holy Spirit empowers us to do it. So remind yourself, when you're confronted with a temptation, when there's something before you, and, you know, it's very easy to talk about guys, oh, don't click on the, right, on the wrong website, don't look at that. Okay, it's easy, but you know what? I've noticed this new trend with women who might not click to see images, but they read material that is just as pornographic because it incites lustful thoughts. And so to read stories or, or to read things, ladies, that would cause lust in your heart is the same as your husband clicking on an image online. There's no difference. It's still lust in your heart that's being conjured up by what, by what you're taking in, whether you read or whether you see. No difference before God. And so my point is this. Whenever we are tempted to lash out in anger, tempted to gossip, tempted to read or to see or to whatever, when we're tempted to just not follow Jesus, and we are tempted to say, Jesus, forgive me for what I'm about to do. When we say, Jesus, I'm about to enjoy this. I know I shouldn't. Please forgive me. 
Okay, when you're in that place, stop and remember the gospel. Before you give in to that temptation, remember, if I give in to this, I wouldn't have a clear conscience. If I give in to this, my, my walk with Christ is going to be clouded. His presence will be clouded. And I don't want that. I still want to walk with Him and experience His presence that I would rather say no to that temptation than to give in. But we have to fight with the gospel. You are redeemed. We'll see you next week. You are adopted. You belong to the king. You have his spirit. You can live in victory. You can. Now, I'm talking about perfection. No, not on this side of heaven. But I'm talking about a holy direction in your life. You can. Spirit empowers you. And he will convict you. He will correct you because he loves you. But last point here on how spirit works practically is he uses other people. So he uses community. He uses community to grow. And, and so the spirit, he grows us, but he, he gives us strength and he gives understanding and he gives us correction, but he gives us community. He gives us other people and the spirit works in us through other people all the time. And so he sanctifies us when others speak truth to us and we receive it humbly and say, you know what, you're right. I was wrong. And you have to know that this applies to me. If I offend you, I promise you it wasn't on purpose. I, I don't usually go about trying to offend those that I care about, but I can say foolish things and do foolish things. And if I do, you have to come to me and say, Pastor, what you said or did, that offended me. So that I can then realize and I can say, I am so sorry. Will you please forgive me? Let's reconcile our relationship. We should be doing this with each other. We must all be correcting one another in love. When, when parents, if your child misbehaves in class and, and the teacher says to you, hey, I love your child, but she kind of had a bad day today. Don't get angry. Don't say, well, how dare she point out my kid's behavior. No, that teacher loves you. That teacher loves your child. She said that. Why? So you can correct your child. Because we want your children to grow up, to love, obey, and to trust Jesus. So we all need daily correction. And the Spirit is so good to us that he offers it through other people that also have the Spirit that he's leading so that we can all have community that is based on love that God has given to us. And so you can't follow him alone. You can't do it. You need other people. So we have home groups. So we want you to be in one. If you don't, you're missing out. You really are missing out. And if your schedule is so busy, you don't have time for a home group, I don't know. I don't want to pass judgment, but I will say this. Is it possible maybe you're just too busy? If you don't have time for community, if you don't have time to serve others, just don't have time. What's eating up your time? Is it spiritual things or not? So God has given us this gift called community, and we need it. That's why we talk about things like having discipleship relationships, like this man that I was talking about who is just exploding with faith and growth. He's being discipled by, by one other believer. And so they're both growing together, but they have a discipleship relationship. And that is helping them to grow. Do you have that 
Do you have one or two people that you meet with very regularly to read the word together and encourage each other? If you don't, you're missing out. This is informal, but, but you can do that. And if you need help, come talk to me. So we have membership, covenant membership. But we're going to have the class today at 4 o'clock in my villa. So we can talk about, all right, you're, you're part of the faith family. This is what community is. And so we want to make sure that you understand what it means to be part of this church. And so spiritual growth is a community project that's accomplished by the Spirit through spiritual brothers and sisters. And so the Holy Spirit transforms people by, number one, the first step is he regenerates. Secondly, he indwells. And then thirdly, he empowers our efforts by these various means. And the Spirit of God is active and he is at work. But if you notice the theme here, all of it is his mercy. He gave us life. He opened our eyes so we can see our condition. He, he regenerated us. He is the one that indwells us and changes our desires and empowers us. He's the one. It's all about God's grace and love and mercy. Everything here is about us reflecting his grace, his gospel to others. And so I ask, as we close, do you have the Holy Spirit? And I really mean that question. Do you have the Spirit? Amen. If you don't, all you have to do is ask. And the Father wills to give good gifts. And the best gift is salvation which comes when his spirit enters into your life. All you have to do is repent and believe. I say all. Even that has to be the spirit's work enabling that. But we beg that even now as we speak, you're feeling a conviction. That's the spirit of God drawing you and saying, turn away from the, the, the trough and turn to the banquet table where there's blessings that God would give to you as you experience his presence. Repent and believe in Jesus, and you will have his spirit today. And if you do have his spirit, are you actively walking in the spirit, actively living in the spirit, communing with Jesus? If you do, it will just absolutely change how you live. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you. We praise you for you have given us your spirit. You have given us the absolute privilege of being known by you of being indwelt by you and of making you known to others as we walk with others that are also indwelt by your spirit. We praise you for your divine work that we could never conjure, that we could never even fake, Father. We can't reproduce this. We can't fake it. It's either it's real or it's not, and we beg it will be real in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be moved by your spirit to obey you and to be about your gospel, telling others the good news. I pray for everyone in this room that even now is grappling with the reality of their sinful condition, that they would repent and truly trust in you and receive your spirit today. I pray that we'll be a church that is about your kingdom and your glory for your son, empowered by your spirit. And we pray in the name of our King Jesus.